This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us for a wonderful Parsha, the power of the Parsha discussion. This week is Parsha's Lech Lecha, a very important one. I want to, uh, I want to talk to, uh, first of all, I want to thank all of you for coming out here on the Zoom. It's amazing that we are now uh, about 18, 19 months into, 20 months into the, no, we're about 20, I don't know, 19 months into the COVID uh, situation, and you guys are still coming on Zoom, and I appreciate you for that, I really do. Uh, thank you for coming on, for those who are here live, for those who are listening later, thank you for listening later. I really deeply appreciate the fact that people, Baruch Hashem, uh, enjoy anything I'm trying to teach, so thank you for listening whenever you're there, or being here whenever you're here. Also want to thank the amazing staff over at Partners Detroit Initiative, Beth Yehuda who have enabled us to do these, part, these uh, lunch and learns, which are now Zoom and learns for so long. Uh, that's, of course, the amazing organization that I work for, Partners Detroit, a subsidiary of Yeshua Beth Yehuda. Thank you to them. And thank you to the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. And it's got billions of hours, or billions of minutes of incredible Torah knowledge that you can uh, fill your medulla oblongata with and then pull out whenever necessary to have bomb drops of wisdom wherever they would best be deployed. That is that. Also, one more thing. Um, I want to mention that due to the incredible work of my brother, Rabbi Ozzy Burnham, this is now available as well on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts and all that kind of jazz under the name Burnham on the Parsha. Let us dive right in. Okay, so this week's Torah portion uh, we kind of talk about the the first road trip ever, right? Now I don't know if you've ever been on a road trip. I remember my first my first real 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 road trip. There you go, a little bit of Burnham history here. So my first real road trip would have been um, when I was I think it was a couple days after I got my license. Uh, a good friend of mine, um, his father had a Suburban. This is in the early days of the Chevrolet Suburban. Actually, I, I don't want to say that. I think the Chevrolet Suburban might be a model since like the 1970s. Um, but whatever, this is like in the 19, 1990s. And those days, the, the Suburbans, they're still pretty big today. But they were, I think they were bigger then. Like just big, huffing, puffing Chevrolets. And, um, and my, my friend's father had a, a Suburban. And uh, we went on a road trip to Niagara Falls, and then we went into Toronto. We spent a little bit of time in Toronto. Uh, we had it set up. There was three of us on the road trip. Uh, my friend Yitzi Deitch, his cousin Mayor Deitch, and myself. And we had it set up where like the whole back of the Suburban was like basically like a bed. And like one guy would be in the back sleeping and resting, while the other two would be in the front you know, driving and keeping the driver company and awake. Uh, we drove through the night, and then we did a lot of driving around. We went into Canada. It was, it was, a lot, it was my first road trip. And you know what? I, I was probably 18 years old, 17 years old at the time. I got my license a little bit late, so I might have been 18 already by then. And um, you know, what, what are road trips really all about? Road trips are kind of a little opportunity to, for you to get out there and, and discover yourself and, and figure out the open road and who you are and who your friends are and what music you like to listen to and how you like to pass the time when you've just got the road open in front of you. There's a lot of beauty, a lot of joy to that, um, a lot of discovery. And in this week's Torah portion, we have the first ever road trip of all time. Um, it is the beginning of this week's parsha. By Yomer Hashem al Avram, Hashem comes to Avram and says, Lech lecha, go forth for you, me'artzacha, from your birthplace, umimoladatacha, sorry, uh, me'artzacha from your land, umimoladatacha, and from your birthplace, 
umi base avicha, and from your father's house, la aretz asher areka, to the land that I will show you. Right. This is the first uh, road trip. So where's Abraham? Abraham going? I know where he's leaving. He's leaving three places behind. Your land, your birthplace, and the house of your father. Where is he going? Ah, it don't say where he's going. It just says to the land that I will show you. When we embarked on that journey, when we embarked on our very first road trip, we knew where we were going. We knew that we were going from Muncie, New York, to uh, to Niagara Falls, and from there to Canada, to a few different places in Canada. We, we, we had a very clear vision of where we were going to go. I think in those days you used to print out on MapQuest the directions. If you guys remember those days, there was before the GPSs were common, you would go to like MapQuest.com, and then you would print out the directions, right? Um, so that was like somewhere in between looking up stuff on maps and, uh, and then the actual GPS revolution we have today where everyone has a GPS. So uh, th- there we go. We, we, we knew where we were going. Avram does not know where he's going. Why not? Now, if we want to understand something even more, we're going to look at the fact that the Torah in two places says the words, Lech Lecha. The other place where this happens is in Genesis 22.2, Parak Chav Beis, Pasuk Beis, where Hashem says, Vayomer, and Hashem says to Avram, Kach na es bincha es yedchidcha asher ahavta. Take please your child, your only one, the one that you love the most, Yitzchak, Velech Lecha, El Eretz HaMoriah, and take him to the land of Moriah. And you will bring him up there for a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Now, first of all, interestingly there, Avram knows exactly where he's going. He's been told, you're going to the land of Moriah, you're going to the mountain of Moriah, you're going to Har Moriah. And he's being told to sacrifice his son. And guess what? God uses those exact words. The lech lecha. So we've got two lech lechas. Avram has a lech lecha in the beginning of his life. The first time God ever speaks to him. And God sends him on a journey. He does not tell him where he's going. The second time, God does tell him where he's going. And he tells him to go to Haram or Riyadh to, to, to offer his son as a sacrifice. But here is where it gets crazy. Here is where it gets crazy, ladies and gentlemen, says the Medrash Rabbah on Bereshis. Perek Chaf Lamed Tes. Tes. So Medrash Rabbah on Genesis 39.9 says like this. Amma Rabbi Levi, Rabbi Levi says, Shtei Pavim Ksiv Lech Lecha. There's two times in the Torah where it says the word Lech Lecha. And we don't know which one was more beloved to God that Avram listened to it. The first one or the second one? What? You don't know? Rabbi Levi, the great scholar, is not sure which was more beloved to God. The fact that Avram was willing to leave his house behind or the fact that Avram was ready to sacrifice his child that he had pined away for and begged for and prayed for and was the apple of his eye? You're not sure which is more beloved before God? You're not sure which was a greater sacrifice on Avraham? What does that even mean? The, 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 the Akedah, where you're being asked to, to sacrifice your son and kill him. It's the greatest and, and most difficult test a parent could ever be asked. And especially for Avram, 
Avram specifically, Avram specifically was a man who was known to be a paradigm of kindness. His tent was open in all four directions. He loved to do acts of kindness. And we'll talk more about that next week, God willing. But here you're taking the man whose entire life is devoted to acts of kindness and you're asking him to do an act of, of, of seeming cruelty, of, of sacrificing his son, of, instead of feeding his son. What does every pa- Jewish parent want to do? Eat, bubble ear, what can I get you? Can I get you some more brisket? Did you have enough to drink? Can I make you a tea? Bubble, can I make you a tea with lemon and honey? You know, what does every Jewish mother, every Jewish father wants to do? Make sure they feed their kid, make sure their kid is robust and healthy. And I mean, Avram wants to feed strangers as well. He also wants to feed strangers, which is great. But of course, he wants to feed his child. And yet you're telling me that Rabbi Levi is not sure which is a more difficult test. To leave your homeland, pack up, honey, we're hitting the road. Which, by the way, throughout all of history, so many Jews have done. Right? So many Jews have done. Think about all the... In history. In 1492. In 1492, the Jews were expelled from Spain. They were offered convert or leave. And while many unfortunately converted, some converted and never looked back, and some converted but tried to keep their Judaism in hiding, but many of them chose to leave. Chose to leave, according by the, including, by the way, the Abarbanel, the person, the commentator that we read about last week, the Abarbanel, who told us that brilliant idea of how to understand the tower of the city of ba- and the city of Babel, of the ear and, and Migdal of Bavel, which we talked about last week. He was a treasurer in the king's uh, department, Don Abarbanel, and the, the king said to him, "You could stay. You're like you're like the good Jew." If your name is Janet Yellen or Ben Bernanke or Alan Greenspan, you could stay because we need you to help our economy. By the way, Janet Yellen, wow. I don't want to get political, but what is going on that they want to see every single transaction that every American makes $600 or more? I don't know what our founding fathers would have said about that. A little bit of Big Brother is watching. I go on vacation with my buddy and he buys, he rents the Airbnb and I send him $600. And the government's like, no, 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 let me send, send me all your records now, please. It's bizarre what's going on right now. Bizarre. Um, anyway, but, bottom line, right now, Janet Yellen is a Jew. She is the Secretary of the Treasury. And we've had many before, the people of the Fed, Ben Bernanke, Alan Greenspan. So Donna Barbanel, nothing new. He was, the, he was the Treasurer of Spain, and he did really, really well for King Ferdinand and Isabella, which should have been a clue, don't kick out the people who are doing really good for your country, but no, 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 of course they did, they kicked out the Jews, they offered Donna Barbanel that he could stay, he said, no thank you, when you kick out my people, I leave with them, and they left, they picked up and they left, that's one example of Jewish people migrations, of course, there were the millions and millions of Jews who came here in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, the various waves of immigration coming to the United States, the 1870s, more of the affluent Germans, the late 1800s and the early 1900s, usually more impoverished people from Poland, Russia, all making their way to America, picking up and leaving behind everything. 
And then even like non-Jews, if you read Grapes of Wrath, right, by uh, Steinbeck, right? That was the whole story of the Okies, right? The people from the area, the Oklahoma area, the Dust Bowl, people were starving. What did they do? They picked up and they left. They, they had to feed their families. They left. It's not unheard of to pick up and leave. Why is Reb Levy making such a big deal out of this? I, yeah, okay, it's not easy. But Reb Levy saying, I'm not sure which is more difficult. I'm not sure if it's more difficult to leave your place of your birthplace or to sacrifice your son on a mountain by slitting his throat with a knife. I don't know. If you have to ask me, if you ask me which one would I rather do, I think I know which one I'd rather do. So how do we understand the statement? How do we understand the statement by Rev. Levy? So in order to understand this, we're going to use an idea shared by the Nesivos Shalom, the Slonimer Rebbe, the Grand Rabbi of the Slonim Hasidut. And he addresses this issue at the very beginning of Parsha's Lech Lecha. And he says as follows, Certainly, the Akedah, the request when God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, the son that you've been praying for, the son that you've been pining away for, the son that you love the most, the only one that you have with your beloved wife Sarah. That is extraordinarily difficult, undoubtedly. However, it's a one-shot affair. You climb up the mountain, you sacrifice your son, and it's done. You can't do it again. You never look back. Hopefully you never look back with regret or whatever it is. But the point is, it's a one-time event. It's the equivalent of someone putting a gun to your head and saying, you know, convert to Christianity or I'll blow your brains out. That's, an, you know, if God forbid someone did that to me, I don't know what my response would be. I hope it would be the right one. And again, throughout the ages, many people were willing to give up their lives in order not to be forced to leave Judaism behind. But a person puts a gun to someone's head and says that, if they say, no, I'm, I, I refuse, a person puts a gun to someone's head and says, kill this person or I'll kill you. A person puts a gun to a, your, a person's head and says, commit adultery or I'll kill you. Or, or convert to a different religion, bow down to this Buddha or whatever it is. Or, and a person says, okay, you can kill me. The person pulls the trigger and within... A few milliseconds, the person's gone and they're in heaven and they've got an amazing place in heaven. Anybody who dies because they're Jewish, anybody who dies because they're God's child, we have a concept in Judaism that they have the greatest place in the world to come. It's a one-time shot. Boom. And even here, which is much more difficult, it's much more difficult to to sacrifice your own son. And of course, Abraham only did it with, with Isaac's consent. Right? Abraham only did it with Isaac's consent, but even so, that's an extraordinarily difficult thing. But you do it once, and it's over. Lech Lecha, according to the way the Nesiv Shalom is explaining it, when Hashem tells Abraham to go and leave behind, what are you leaving behind? You're leaving behind Moladetacha, sorry, Artsacha, your land, your culture, your birthplace, the morals and mores that you grew up with, the culture, the home culture that you grew up with. Leaving that behind doesn't happen easily. 
even when it's bad, even when your home culture is bad, right? Many, unfortunately, many people grow up in abusive homes and it could take them a lifetime to get away from an abusive home. Most people who grew up in an abusive home spend decades, if not their entire life, trying to lech lecha, to figure themselves out, to really tear themselves away from the aftershocks and after effects of the trauma they experienced as a child. But if it was a positive experience, then it's even more difficult. If a person had positive experiences in a world that he later comes to recognize is not great, I'll give you an example. Let's say somebody at some point in his life loved sports. Loved sports. As a matter of fact, sometimes the reason why people might love sports is because it's a good escape from wherever else they would be. So they throw themselves into sports full time. I remember a certain point in my life when I, whatever, I, I was like a teenager. And I remember there was a point in my life where I used to watch, like, I don't know, it was like eight hours of football every Sunday, you know? I would catch the early game, and there, you know, a football game, you have the pregame show, and then you've got the game, and then the after game. I remember at one point in my life, I used to watch like eight hours of football every Sunday, every single Sunday. And maybe I'd come back and watch Monday night football, maybe Thursday night. Today, I couldn't care less. <laughs> I couldn't care less because guess what? That football was something I was doing because I wasn't necessarily in the best place. It wasn't because football truly was offering me something incredible. Meaning, it, it, it definitely um, it gives a person a, a, when when you are able to have a sports. Give me one second. I'm just going to mute all. By the way, I'm sorry. Um. Yeah, when, when, when people are able to throw themselves into sports, right, that's often a better alternative to whatever else is going on. And that's great. But hopefully, at a certain point, you're able to come to a place where you realize, like, I've loved sports for so long, I really have, and maybe I'll check out a game once in a while, but at the end of the day, that's just not where I'm at. That's not who I am. That's not what's so important to me anymore. Again, it's not that it's a bad thing necessarily. It's not. And it can be often a good place of refuge when things are chaotic around you. Or even just, as this is a much better alternative. Meaning, I remember one person told me, like, I'm so glad that my kids aren't into baseball because what are the other kids his age into that are not into baseball? Everything else is a, bad, is a worse alternative. When the alternatives to baseball are TikTok, I'd rather my kid be into baseball. Right? So I get it. But let's say, and, and again, because of that, you have a lot of positive, warm memories. Can you leave baseball behind, maybe? Can you jettison baseball? Or has that become part of who you are? Can you jettison football? I mean, I was much more of a football fan than a baseball fan. Football and basketball, those were my two big sports. You know? Can I jettison football? Can I tell you today that I don't know if I know the names. I think I know the names of two NFL players, maybe. I think I know Tom Brady, the GOAT, of course, and Patrick Mahomes, right? 
Mahomes. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, I think, is the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, right? Because I think he was like, a, they were in the Super Bowl together, you know, whatever. Anyway, I, I, but I don't think, I, I don't know that I can name literally another player on, on, on the entirety of the NFL. There's probably some guy named Johnson. <laughs> there's always, there's probably someone whose first name is Mike. And I, whatever, I'm out of there. I, I don't know. Basketball, you know, LeBron James, of course, you know, and uh, whatever. There's more Kyrie Irving. I just he made the news recently. His refusal to get a vaccine. I, I, I just I don't know these things anymore, and, and it's okay. Not, not that they're bad. They're not. There's nothing bad. It's just that I just don't care. But if you've had a very positive association with sports for your whole life, and it's not a bad thing, are you able to are you able to walk away when life starts to offer you more important alternatives? Leaving behind everything. Lech lecha. If you want to discover yourself, the way you do that is by stripping away everything that you got into as an alternative to something else. Anything that you got into that might not really, really, really be you, but might be a version of you that is comforting, comfortable, familiar, enjoyable, but it's not really you. That's a lifetime of work. So again, it's a lifetime of work to leave behind trauma of negative experiences, and it's even more difficult to leave behind the positive things that you turn to to drown out any negativity that you were feeling at the time. But you got to leave them both behind if you want to get to the place that's really you, because neither of them are you. The trauma isn't you, and what you attach yourself to to drown out the trauma wasn't you either. So you've got to find out, who am I? That's a very, very, very difficult thing to do. It's a lifetime of work. And it's especially a lifetime of work because slipping back in is like slipping right back into like the warm, you know, in the, in the winter, you know, you, you, have, you sleep with a nice down blanket and it's cold in the room. And then, you know, a person gets up out of bed and they're like, oh, I should just get back in, right? <laughs> and getting back into bed is like the warm comforter and the bed. You get up, you get out of bed, you're like, oh, it's freezing cold. The bedroom is cold. And not, it's not cold. Like, thank God we're not living like in, in the prehistoric. We're not living in the prehistoric era uh, when, when it was, you know, people, I mean, George Washington, by the way, George Washington for all his incredible wealth. If he got up to use the restroom in the middle of the night, it was 30 degrees in his room. You know what I'm saying? Thank God when we get up to use the restroom in the middle of the night or whatever, or we get up for whatever reason. Maybe in the middle of the winter, it's 60, 67 degrees, I don't know, 68 degrees, but under the comforters is such an oh-so-comfortable, toasty 84 degrees or whatever it is, and it's like it's beckoning you back in. So it's, it's not easy to leave that behind. Anytime things start going wrong... I can just always go right back into my cocoon. I can always go right back into my sleeping bag and turn out the world for a while and not have to deal with it. Just shut it down. Now again, again, remember, let's go through this very clearly. Sports, politics. All, these are all different things that people throw themselves into. And I'm guilty myself. Don't get me wrong. I'm guilty myself. Right now, I don't listen to football at all. But guess what? I still listen to like political discourse, podcasts, whatever it is. Like, is that really, is that really going to benefit me and my family tremendously? I, I don't know. 
And again, we all have to have some sort of outlet. But the point is, at a certain point in our life, we have to say, we have to be able to, like, the, the greater we become, the greater we are at stripping away everything that's not really me. Lech lecha means go to yourself. And going to yourself means stripping away everything that's not me. And again, as much as I love sports, guess what? You know, I, I, I love the Patriots. I love the Lions. These are words that are very rarely heard, right? I love the Detroit Lions, right? You may love the Lions. You know who doesn't love you? The Lions. <laughs> they, just, they really don't. The Lions don't love you. They love your money. They love your participation. They love when you buy tickets. They love when you go to the stadium and you buy a $9 you know, soda or whatever it is. You know, they, they love that. And they'll give you great service. They'll say, we have the best fans. And every time, uh, you know, at the end of a Super Bowl, you get the owners out there, they call out the owners, they try out those old, <laughs> old white men. I don't know if you know this, but 50% of NFL teams are owned by Jewish men. So like, they, you know, there's the end of it, you know, like the Patriots were playing the Buccaneers a couple, it was the last year maybe. Both, both teams were owned by Jewish people. Robert Kraft and I forgot what the family that owns the Buccaneers were. And they actually, you know, they, they, they trotted them out. So all these guys come out. And what do they say? The first thing that the owners say, we love our fans. We have the best fans. What does that mean? It means that we're getting paid by our fans. So that's what we're going to give credit to them right away because we want to make sure they feel bought in. We want to make sure they feel that this win is their win. They are a winner. <laughs> I remember I lived in New York in the 90s. I was in high school. In the, in the 90s, the, the Knicks, the New York Knicks, um, were, were, the New York Knicks were like very, very, uh, they were a pretty good team at the time. But unfortunately, they didn't, they weren't, um, here we go, High Saffron caught it. The Glazer family owns the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Exactly. Another good Jewish family. And the Crafts own, I mean, I, I think the Lions are not owned by a Jewish family, if I'm not mistaken. I'm kidding. Of course, they're owned by the Ford family. <laughs> The Lions are not owned by a Jewish family. They were, you know, they were first owned, I guess, by uh, Mr. Henry Ford, one of the greatest, uh, not greatest, but most infamous anti-Semites in American history. Anyway, um, so, and that's why they stink, exactly. <laughs> they need to get a good Jewish owner. That's when they'll start making some real money and start getting some W's on the, on, on the scoreboard. I think right now they're 0-5. Anyway, so, right, the bottom line is, is we were middle talking about... Uh, yeah, what, what, what is you? And, and the sports team, they don't love you. They love your money. It's very important. And, and again, I, I, I'm not, I, I want this to be very clear. I'm, I'm not saying that you should never listen to sports or watch a game. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that as you get closer and closer to who you are, those things will make less and less of a difference for you. And it's going to be a lifelong endeavor and a lifelong pursuit. Right? Meaning, I think that in America, the, the Gemara says, look, the Gemara says that it's a good thing that there's, fan, that there's um, sports in the world. Because if not for sports, people will be consumed with consuming one another. Instead, they're consuming, consuming sports, which is great. And let them feel that sense of, of, of kinship. Let them feel that Wolverine pride. Let them wear that Michigan you know, emblem proudly on their chest wherever they go, or the Sparties, or, or Red Wings, or whatever. Exactly. I got you, hi. I understand the Red Wings opening night tonight. Hi, we'll be there. Yes, I got you. Right? Um, but the point, I'm tra- <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that whether it be that you identify so deeply with the Republican Party or the Democrat Party, or you identify so deeply with the sports team, or you identify so deeply with a, a, a group of musicians, you know, I am the number one Pink Floyd fan, you know, 
yeah, whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, people get like caught up. Like I'm the number. I hope you're not the Floyd fan because Floyd's a Roger Waters rabid anti-Semite, right? But you could be like, I'm, 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 I'm a, I'm a deadhead. I'm a deadhead, right? We attach to ourselves so many things that are not really essential to us, and the job of lech lecha is saying, figure out who you really are. Figure out what relationships are really worth your time investing in because you're going to be able to make a meaningful difference to them and they're going to be able to meaningfully enrich your life. When you're able to do that, that's the process of Lech Lecha and that is a lifelong endeavor. I'm so far away from it. I'm so far away from it. I have so many things that I, like, I get psyched up about that I don't know that they're me. Again, we all need outlets, but it's a process. Look back at your own at your life and, and say to yourself, is there anything that you are today that you would never have imagined yourself being? Right? On one side or the other. For all you know, you are achieving way more than you ever imagined you would have achieved. Or you may have been like, wow, I, I did not re- expect that my life would have been turned out this way. In which case, okay, Baruch Hashem, let's think about that. Let's think about how do I I get to that place where I live the life I I really, really envision for myself or envision for myself now. The process of self-discovery is incredible. And it starts, number one, with recognizing your own potential and recognizing that you have a piece of God inside of you. And if God is guiding you, you can get anywhere. And number two, not allowing life circumstances to turn you into somebody who shuts off. I think we talked about this. I don't know. We didn't talk about, I'm not sure if we talked about it in this, in this way when we talked about the, the, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The challenge of life is to live life, to not shrink away. I want to tell you about a man who was born in Milan. Not Milan, the fashion capital of the world, but Milan, Ohio. The most unfashionable place in the world. He grew up in a family that had nothing. But then they built a railroad through Milan, and his family got forced out, so they said, you know what? They moved. They moved to Port Huron, Michigan. Your Port, Port Huron, Michigan. Okay? At a very young age, he unfortunately developed hearing problems. We have to recognize that we live today with such incredible science. There were times where people back in the day, A, would get an infection, a simple infection from a cut. You you pricked your finger on a rose bush and you could die, God forbid, before they had penicillin. I mean, that's really the way it was. But other times, people would get get an ear infection and then they would go semi-deaf or or deaf for the rest of their lives from a simple ear infection. We all have so many ear infections when we were young, you know? So he had some kind of infection and he developed hearing problems. And he was close to death for the rest of his life. The teacher of his local school told people that, oh, that kid's mind is addled. Right? The guy doesn't have a brain. He's, he's, he's messed up. And uh, his schooling was terminated when he, after three months. He went to school. And the teacher said, no, this kid is he's not well. He's not well. This is not a school for special children. And uh, they, they sent him home. So he had no schooling. And the rest of his schooling came from his mother and whatever he could read on his own. So again, this kid, no formal schooling, grows up in a super poor family, is deaf from early, early on in life. For the first portion of his life, he made money selling candy and newspapers 
on the trains running in and out of Port Huron. Port Huron was, used to be a very, very, very important port in America. It still is actually pretty important because the boats that come in off the Great Lakes, one of the places they dock is in Port Huron. And the Great Lakes is a way that you can get boats in from the East Coast all the way deep into the inland. So there was a lot of trains coming in and out. Passenger boats were coming in, dropping off people, and they would get on the trains and head out to Kansas or wherever it was, or Chicago. And he would sell candy, newspapers, and then he didn't have enough that wouldn't wouldn't support his family. So then he would sell vegetables on the street, literally on the street, selling vegetables. Tomatoes, 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 tomatoes. And people would come to him and say, I'd like four tomatoes, and you have to read their lips because he couldn't even hear them. Then his, his wife died at the young age of 29 from a brain tumor. And he was left with three little children to care for. All right? Not good. Not good. This same person is directly responsible for the comfort that you are sitting in right now. Because he invented the modern power station and the electrical delivery system that we still have in America today. Again, we have power stations. They develop, they're able to produce power at the power, you know, uh, the coal plants or the nuclear plants or whatever the plants are, right? They're able to produce a lot of electricity, but how does it get to your home? It gets to your home. There's power stations, there's way stations, there's, there's the power lines. He, exactly, Michael Feldman, very good, you called it, his name was Thomas Edison. He invented the modern power station, the electrical delivery system, so we have electricity streaming into our homes, which is why right now your home has light, and your home has air conditioning, and your home has heating that can be piped around your house easily. He invented the movie camera. After 2,000 failures, he invented the light bulb. He invented another 80 products. But it's not even, that's, people don't realize, that's not even half of what he did. He, besides inventing over 80 products, he invented the phonograph so we could listen to music. He also began 14 companies. In his life, this man began 14 companies. Remember, this is a guy whose wife died when he was probably about, his wife was 29, he was what, 30, 31, leaving him with three small kids to care for. He's deaf. He's living, selling candy on a newspaper, and newspapers on trains. And he began 14 companies, one of them being, of course, GE, which is one of the largest companies in the world today that makes half the appliances, so many of the appliances that we have. Now, if you would have told Thomas Alva Edison when he was selling vegetables off of trains coming through Port Huron and selling candy and newspapers, newspaper, 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 candy, 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 we got Baby Ruth, we got whatchamacallit, we got Reese's Pieces, you know, he's yelling around, he can't even hear what he's saying, he can't hear his own voice. You tell him that he's going to invent products that are going to change the world forever and he's going to start 14 companies, many of which are going to be around over 100 years later? He would have told you he's crazy. You're crazy. And, 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 and indeed, he had no way of even relating to it because he was so far away from that himself. The only way he got there was by relentlessly pursuing the noise inside. He could have been a victim. He could have easily chosen to be a victim. That would have been easy. Life totally did not smile upon him. He grew up with nothing. 
He was made deaf at nothing. He wasn't given formal education. His wife died on him when he was so young, leaving him with three children. He could have easily been, you know what? I'm just going to take care of my three kids and come home every night and flip on Netflix and drink a six-pack of beer. And who in the world is going to blame me? What do you want me to do? I can't hear? I've got three kids to care for and I'm deaf? I'm working all day, two jobs, just to be able to put food on the table. What do you want from me? But no, he's like, he said, Netflix is not not my thing. Actually, he's the one who gave Netflix to the world (laughs) because he invented the movie camera, (laughs) right? But the point is, he was relentless in pursuing his whatever he was passionate about. And he was passionate about tinkering and inventing. And eventually he opened up the labs, the Bell Labs in New Jersey. And he spent his life in the laboratory after that doing exactly what he loved to do and exactly what he was meant to do, which is figure out inventions that will change humanity. Hashem couldn't tell Avram where you're going because it just wouldn't even compute. It it, it, it doesn't have a reality. You're an entirely different person. When you take your life and you embark on a journey of growth, when you embark on a journey of trying to figure out who you are and slowly stripping away, slowly, slowly, very important, by the way, you say, you know what? The rabbi said I shouldn't watch any sports today. You know, that's it. I'm not watching any sports. No, I'm I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that I'm not going to watch any sports for the rest of my life. I probably will once in a while. It's a really good game, a championship game or whatever it is, and basketball or maybe a Super Bowl or whatever, you know. I, I still can enjoy a good game. It's just it's not who I am anymore. It's not what I'm all about. It's not my identity. It's a process of figuring out who you are, and in order to get there, you've got to leave behind other things that you may have picked up earlier. You can't like chocolate cake until you put some in your mouth. you got to go on this journey of self-discovery. There was a chassid who they once said to him, he was an older chassid, and they said to him, New Yankala, can you play the piano? You know what he said? I don't know. I never tried. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe I never had a piano in my house. I never tried, but could be I'm a virtuoso. I just don't know it yet. I'm always trying to figure out who I am. So that's idea number one. The idea of the reason why we say that the journey of Lech Lecha, that was the beginning of this Parsha, might be even more difficult than the journey of killing your son, or the, 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 the challenge, is because one of them is a one-time deed, and one of them is a lifelong process. Now, by the way, interestingly, when it comes to the second one, Hashem tells him exactly where he's going. The first one, Hashem says, just leave, and I'll, I'll tell you where you're going on the road. You'll figure it out. On the second journey, Hashem says to him, I want you to go to Eretz HaMoriah. I want you to go to the mountaintop. And I want you to sacrifice your son. Because there, the real journey that Abraham was being called upon was to discover, is there anything that you're willing to sacrifice everything for? Again, is there anything that you're willing to sacrifice everything for? And that's a process of discovery where I know where the physical destination is. The destination is Har HaMoriah, the Mount, Mount Moriah. And I'm supposed to sacrifice my son there. But whether or not I can get there will be an absolutely fascinating exploration of self. Can I get there? And by the way, my friends, like, I, I want you to point out, this is what life is about. It's, it, it's, it's about the journey of trying to say, can I get to where I am a different person than I am? And, and it's a years-long adventure. 
Can I get there? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Okay. That is idea number one. And now we're going to get into a little bit of Kabbalistical stuff. Because you know that you come here for your daily dose of Kabbalist... Kabbalist... Kabbal... I'm trying to put, the, put together the word Kabbalistic and fantastic. But Kabbal fantastic. I, whatever. No, doesn't work. Fan... <laughs> anyway, we're going to try to get a little mystical here today. There's another story that happens in this week's Torah portion. What goes on over there? Hold on a second. Kabbalatastic. There we go. Alrighty. A little Kabbalatastic information for today. So let's look at uh, chapter 13, verses 7 through 13. 7 through chapter 13, verses 7 through 13. Vayehi Riv ben 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 Roe Mikne Avram Ben Roe Mikne Lot. And there was a quarrel between the herdsmen of Avram's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites were then dwelling in the land. And Avram says to Lot, Let's not have fights between me and you. Let's not have fights between our shepherds. We're brothers. We're related. You're my nephew. Behold, the whole world is before you. He Separate, please, from me. If you go to the left, I'm going to go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'm going to go to the left. Meaning pick any direction you want to go. I'm going to go the other way. And Lot lifted up his eyes. And, and, and Lot puts up, picks up his eyes and he sees that the entire plain of the Jordan Valley was beautifully watered before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was like It was like the Garden of Hashem, like the most beautiful land of Egypt as you come to Tzor, which is like the most beautiful part of Egypt. So what does Lot decide? Lot is and Lot decides to take the entire Jordan Valley over there. Vayisa Lot Miketem, and Lot travels out from the east. Vayipardu Ishmael Achiv, and they separate from one another. Avram Yashab Baretz Canaan. Avram sits in the land of Canaan. But Lot Yashab Barea Kikar, and Lot sat in the lands of the plains. Vayahal Ad and he. He uh, set up his tent. Um, in, he set up his tents until Sodom. And he traveled until Sodom, setting up tents. And then he got there. The Anshe Sodom, Ra'im Bechataim La Hashem Ba'od. The people of Sodom are very, very evil. Okay, that is what's going on over here. What's really going on over here? Shall we get Kabbalatastic about this? Kabbalatastic. We're going to get Kabbalatastic. All right. So we, can we get a little Kabbalah into this? All righty. Let's see. In mystical thought, the right hand always represents kindness. And the left hand always represents judgment and discipline. And that's why the Torah says, for example, in the Gemara, in Tractate Sota 47a, Tanarabanan, la'olam tehe small docha v'yamin mekareves. 
You should always use your left hand to push somebody away and your right hand to draw them in. Your hand of kindness is drawing them in, but your left hand, your hand of discipline is maybe keeping them at bay. You don't want people to overstep their boundaries. You don't want to get to a bad place like that. That can very frequently happen if people don't know how to set up proper boundaries. So with your left hand, which is left represents justice and discipline, set up the boundaries. You Sorry, you, you can't be here right now. With your right hand, bring in, okay? The Torah recognizes the importance of both positive and negative interactions with others, but tells you which one should be primary. Your primary one's the most, your more powerful hand, your right hand, the one with the big guns, right? That is your right hand. Bring people in, okay? And by the way, that's what the, the, the psychologists tell us, that we should be thinking about that when we give people uh, negative feedback versus positive feedback. Now, listen carefully, because this is crazy. In a study one time where they studied parents' interactions with kids, what do you think was the ratio of negative comments to positive comments? Okay, throw that in the text box over there, please. I'd love to see what you think. What do you think was the ratio of negative to positive, right? So negative would be like, how come you always spill your milk at the table? Negative would be like, why can't you just do your homework on time like your brother does? Negative would be, I always tell you to put away your bags when you come home. And positive is like, oh, Johnny, you look so cute today. Or, oh, Johnny, you're doing great in school. Oh, Johnny, I love the way you work at your homework. You're so serious about it. Okay? So over here we got one person. Cherna says 70-30. Hi, Saffron says 80-20 negative over positive. Marsha says 10 negative to 90 positive. Marilyn says the opposite, 90 negative to 10 positive. But who says the real answer? The real answer, by the way, is mind-blowing. 20 negative to 1 positive. When they studied parent-child interactions, they found that the actual real number is 20 negative to 1 positive. Now, Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem, we try very hard not to do that um, in our home. We try to really use a lot more. But if you want to know what the ratio might be, according to Fredrickson and Losada, okay, uh, Barbara Fredrickson and Marcial Losada are she's a they they are um, people who work on the sort of idea of like positive psychology. They say the proper positive, negative to positive ratio should be 1 to 2.9, meaning one negative constructive statement for every three, basically, statements of positive. Instead, it's 20 negative to one positive. John Gottman talks about a 5 to 1 ratio of positive comments to negative comments for a successful marriage. Right? Five positive comments to your wife or husband for every one that you say that's, might be viewed as critical. Okay, now, by the way, there's, there's a, 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 another limit on the other end. There's an upper limit for effective positive to negative ratios, and that is 11.6 to 1, right? So what happens is, you say 11 comments of positive to your child, to your spouse, then you say one negative one, and then the next time you say 12, because it's 11.6. Or you say, you start saying, here's what you start saying to your wife, because you, you, you say 11 positive comments, and then you're like, I love the way you always, and then you stop, because you're already at 0.6, that's 11.6. That's already the point six. What you want to say is, uh, take care of the, the kids so beautifully, but you already finished half your... So you say, I, I already said 11.6 comments. Now I've got to give you some criticism. Anyway, the bottom line is, appropriate negativity plays an important dynamic within human flourishing. It's important that we should have a small docha, that we should have a left hand helping and saying, hey, you were out of line. Like in a, in a, in a positive way. 
Sometimes a wife needs to tell her husband, like, the way you interacted yesterday with the kids was just, it's not appropriate. Or she says, or the husband says to the wife, you know, the way you talked to my mom today was just was not okay, you know? Those are appropriate conversations. But again, it's, it's about the ratios over here. Right hand bringing in, left hand pushing away. Anyway, bottom line is back to Kabbalistical stuff. Kabbalistical... <laughs> Whatever. I'm not going to be a beatboxer, that's for sure. The Zohar says numerous times that the interactions... The Zohar, of course, is one of the primary Kabbalistical texts. And it says that the pr- interactions between Lot and Avram, okay, Lot, the nephew of Abraham and Abraham, are supposed to be looked at as the interactions between the good inclination and the bad inclination, because Lot was just a negative dude. Okay? So he says as follows. And, and there are other sources I can, I can elaborate on this, but we're not going to do that right now over here. But... Here is one, one thing we see clearly here is that Avram says, when you're going left, I know to go right. When you think it's appropriate to be harsh and disciplinarian, that's when I know that I should be going kind and compassionate. And when you're going kind and compassionate, I know that I should be going harsh and disciplinarian. For example... Right now, there's been a push for certain people to just let everybody out of, out of prisons or we're going to abolish prisons. We're going to, uh, there's, there's a big catch and release program going on right now in, uh, in, in New York. They've abolished bail. So people are committing felonies and literally being took, taken into the police station and then just being let out. Just giving, they're giving them a ticket and saying, please come back to court so we can put you, uh, and maybe, maybe put you in jail. Make sure you show up for court on, on, on Thursday the, the 23rd. You know, like, it's crazy. And I, there's documentation of people who have committed three felonies in two days, have been arrested three times for felonies in two days, and they're let back out on the street. That's where somebody is going to kindness. They're using, they're flexing, they're trying to be so kind and compassionate. But Avram says to Lot, the, the good inclination says to the bad inclination, when I hear you trying to go kind, there's something twisted. I know I need to go disciplinarian. But in the areas where you're trying to go disciplinarian, you're trying to shut down people's you know, ability to speak or people's ability to you know, express their opinions or shut them down and you're trying to literally deny them the ability to have their own free speech or whatever it is, that's where I go. Right, and I say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat this person like an individual. When you want to be disciplinarian and assume that everybody who is of a certain color of skin is irredeem- irredeemably, irredeemably racist, I'm going to say, wait, wait, no. Before you go and discipline somebody and judge them with your left hand, left hand is just ju- judging and discipline. Before, if I see you, Lot, Avram saying to Lot, if, if you want to go right, if you want to be kind and compassionate, I'm going left exactly there because... You are, you are messed up. So wherever I see you going right and being kind and compassionate, I know that that's not a good thing. And when I see you being disciplinarian, and you're telling people that they're bad, you're judging people by the color of their skin and telling them they're irredeemably bad or whatever, it, I know I need to be a little bit more kind and compassionate and look a little deeper. So that's a, a, a very, very big, a very important concept. You know, Just to show you, by the way, I, one of the one of the I, I like listening to podcasts about um, cryptocurrency. So I was listening to a podcast today. 
there's a very famous guy in the world of banking. His name is Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon is the CEO of J.P. Morgan, so he's the probably the most prominent banker in America today. Now, JP, J, uh, Jamie Dimon has been on record hating on Bitcoin going back to 2013 or 2014, okay? Now, for the record, in 2013, a Bitcoin probably cost about, I don't know, $20, and, um, and Jamie, Jamie Dimon was on the record cursing it out and saying it's worthless and it's nothing. Today, a Bitcoin is worth uh, $58,000, roughly, and uh, so Jamie Dimon may have made a mistake, but he, he keeps doubling down. It's amazing. Like every year or so, he puts out another uh, press conference, another point where he makes it very, very clear. I mean, right now, his bank for years was saying, he, he was saying, anybody who tries to trade cryptocurrencies, I would fire them from my bank. And, and right now, the bank is finally, they have to because people are going to leave them. Institutional investors all over the world want cryptocurrencies. And if JP if Chase does not offer it to their clients, their clients will leave. So he's, he's forced now to... to, to offer Bitcoin services and cryptocurrency services to the Chase um, clients because otherwise they're going to leave. But there was a whole recent interview a couple days ago where he's like, it it was actually, it was on Columbus Day when the banks, ironically in America, are closed because of Columbus Day, right? And that's the day when people who are using Chase can't access their banking because it's closed because it's a holiday. And of course, cryptocurrency is open 24-7, 365, He's there cursing out cryptocurrencies again and saying it's worthless. Yes, we're going to offer it to our customers because our customers are adults and if they want to, we can't take it away from them. But it's worthless. So I was listening to this podcast today and someone said something fascinating. He said, the reason why I started investing in Bitcoin in 2014, this was like a very big Bitcoin investor. He said, the reason that I started investing in Bitcoin was because I saw, number one, how against it the, the Chinese government was. And number two, how against it like traditional banks and, and, and traditional finance was against it. And I said, if they're so against it, I don't know much about it, but it's probably a good thing. When the Chinese government is really against something, it's probably a good thing. You look at all the people who hate on Israel. Who hates on Israel? Iran, Libya, right? Who hates on Israel? Like All the bad actors all over the world. All the worst people in the world. If you see all the worst people in the, in the world criticizing Israel, it's probably a good thing. When you see the Chinese government and all the big bankers who put us into financial crisis after financial crisis hating on crypt- cryptocurrency, that's what made this guy say, I want cryptocurrency. Avram says to Lot, when you go left, when you start showing judgment and discipline, I'm going to say, I need to go right. I need to start being more compassionate. Because your barometer is so messed up. And when you're showing kindness and compassion, that's when I know that I need to start showing discipline. And you really see the world today. It's, it's, it's really like that. It's, it's, we're, we live in a world where, where it's an up-to-down world. And people, in the name of kindness and compassion, are allowing things that are just horrific. Horrific, horrific. Can't get into all the details right now, but there's a story out of Virginia where, like, in the name of protecting um, certain rights that people are trying to push right now, a school board covered over heinous, heinous acts, and, and, and children were harmed because of that. Children were, were horrifically abused and harmed because of that, because they were covering over acts that people were doing because they wanted to be pro a certain you know, agenda that's being pushed. It, it's crazy. In the name of kindness, children are getting horribly abused. In the name of kindness. And on the same token, we're disciplining 
And we're telling people who are good people their whole lives, you're a bad person. Anyway, when you see the crazy world go right, you go left. When you see the crazy world go left, you go right. And you just look back and say, yeah, Avram, I remember. I remember those words that you said to Lot. If you go left, I go right. If you go right, I go left. I'm with you, Avram. I'm your grandchild. And with that, I close it out for today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for being awesome. Because you really are. Boom. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.